Well, and even as you take your seats, I encourage you to take your Bibles as well and open them back up to the book of Revelation. That's the last time that I'll say that for a while, because today is the conclusion of our summer series as we've worked our way through these opening three chapters of this great book. I know it's hard for me to believe, I'm kind of shaking my head before you here, that the summertime is already over, but it is indeed here over the next couple of weeks, all of those of us with families are going to be buttoning things up and preparing ourselves for a brand new school year. And it's hard to believe that we're there already, but here we are. And yet never fear, uh, because there are many great things in store for us come the fall, both in terms of the scriptures that we'll be studying as we return to the Gospel of John, as well as as a church, as our fall ministry calendar gets going, a number of things that you'll want to take note of. One of those things I do want to make mention of for you here today, uh, because today is the expiration date on the early bird pricing for our women's conference that's coming up in early September. And that is something that I would encourage all of you ladies to take advantage of. Uh, it's really geared for ages high school all the way on up through the end of life uh, because the subject matter is going to be uh, pertinent for, for all of you. Uh, the subject is to live is Christ. And I cannot think of a better theme uh, that would be more encouraging to the hearts of the women here in our church than for their eyes to be turned to Christ. We are bringing in a speaker from out of town, a women's ministry speaker, and I think that you all will be very encouraged by that. Uh, gentlemen, I would encourage you as well to make it possible for your wives to be there on that day. If that means you taking the kiddos for a couple hours, then so be it, do it, uh, because we all want our wives to be encouraged, do we not, in their pursuit of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a table out in the back here today. would encourage you to take advantage of that. I know that would be a benefit to you all. But Revelation 1 through 3, this is the text that we've been in over the past couple of months here in these summertime weeks. And what a study it has been as we have seen the commands and expectations that Jesus has for his church clearly outlined for us. And I am very grateful for that. But there are some things that we've skipped over in these texts that we need to pay attention to here this morning. You know, it, it's really in his fascinating business memoir called Shoe Dog that the founder of Nike, that very well-known brand, his name is Phil Knight, explains how he went about coming up with the name of his now very famous company. You see, when he first started his company and was beginning to make athletic shoes, he had the not-so-memorable name of Blue Ribbon Sports. A name that if he had progressed along the way with it, we would certainly today not know because his company would have died. That's a terrible name for a shoe company. But see, as his company began to grow, Phil Knight knew that a rebranding was in order. The only trouble was he couldn't think of a better name than, than Blue Ribbon Sports. And he was, he was very stuck because the deadline for filing the new trademark was coming up right on him. And it wasn't until another employee walked into his office and told him about a dream that he had had the night before consisting of Nike, the ancient Greek goddess of victory, that Phil Knight knew what the future brand of his company was going to be. But once he heard about Nike... He couldn't get his mind off of it, and thus was born one of the most iconic brands that has ever been created. Because Nike, you see, is a word in the Greek language that means to conquer, to overcome, to prevail, or to win. It is truly a great name for an athletic apparel company. Because in choosing this name, you see, Phil Knight tapped into everybody's desire to be a winner. Obviously, no one wants to wear shoes that make you a loser. But if you wear shoes that make you a winner, Nike kind of shoes, well then, there you are on the podium. Because everybody wants to be what? A conqueror, a victor, a winner. And I think that we should take notice of that desire and the meaning of that word Nike as we turn our attention back to the text of Revelation 1 through 3. 
Because you see, there are some details here in these texts that we've skipped over, and they all have to do with the word Nike. In Greek, that's the noun. Nikao is the verb. And seven times in these three chapters, Jesus has used this word. When he has come to each church as the end of his, at the end of his messages to them, and he has said, to the one who conquers, to the one who prevails, or to the one who overcomes. See, in the ancient world, this was a word that was often used in the context of a contest or even in combat. It's a word that means to win, even in the face of many obstacles. And that, friends, is the word that Jesus uses here to motivate all seven of his churches. It's the word that he uses to motivate this church. And so we would do very well to understand what he means when he talks about conquering. You see, the expectation of Jesus clearly in these chapters has been that his church is not going to muddle through life, giving it a, well, let's give it a go and see what happens kind of try. No, we are expected to give it our all, to be overcomers, as he says here in these chapters. So as we approach the text this morning, it's with an understanding that this is perhaps the most important message that we have covered together this summer, because this is the message that provides us with all of the motivations to meet the standards of Jesus Christ. It's also the message that gives us the knowledge of how we can apply ourselves in order to meet the standards of Christ. And indeed, isn't his bar set pretty high? I mean, that's what we've been learning as we've gone through these chapters over this summer, is it not? Where every week we've been looking at some pretty hard and heavy things that Jesus expects out of us. I mean, he's really ratcheted up the standards for what he expects us as his church to be. We've learned that we are to be a devoted church. We've learned that we're to be a fearless church. We've learned that we're to be a lovingly intolerant church, a pure church, a vibrant church, a steadfastly resolute church. And finally, we've learned that we must be a dependent church. But how? See, that question has remained unanswered. How are we to be all these kinds of things? And how do we conquer the challenges that are before us so that we can be found faithful. See, as we conclude this study, we need to find out how we can become a victorious, conquering church that is declared by King Jesus as having been faithful and true. And so this morning, I want for us to work our way through these chapters and insert ourselves at various points in them to understand what a conqueror is. And then we'll look at what a conqueror gets. That's the motivation before we conclude by looking at what a conqueror does. That's the how. You ready? Clear enough? Let's begin and go ahead and jump in. What a conqueror is. See, before we can get around to talking about how to be a church that overcomes, we have to understand what Jesus means when he says to the one who conquers, because that is admittedly kind of a vague idea. And if we were left to just assign our own definition to what it means to be a conquering church, we might think that conquering here in this context means overcoming and crushing some kind of enemy. Or alternatively, we might think that it means to cast down some kind of spiritual stronghold. But see, neither of those things are what Jesus means when he uses this word. See, when Jesus talks about conquering, when he talks about overcoming, he's not talking about an action that is taken through violent force. No, let me go ahead and give you his definition here up front, and then I'll prove it to you, okay? The biblical definition of what it means to be a conquering Christian is that you, like Christ did before you, overcome sin and death in order to attain to eternal life. 
Because you see, it's the reception of your eternal life. It's gaining that eternal life that is the ultimate victory. See, every time in Revelation we have heard the statement, to the one who conquers, we could really substitute with, to the one who realizes eternal life. Because you can't say that you have conquered death until you have first gained what? Life. You see, it's that idea of gaining eternal life that is synonymous with the idea of conquering. That's what we have to understand. That's our ultimate victory. Now, I know you say, okay, where did you get that? Well, the first clue to our understanding about what it means to conquer is given to us right here in chapter 1, verse 18, in the vision of Christ, where he comes and speaks to the apostle John. And how does he describe himself? Well, the way that he describes himself is essentially a description of the way that he overcame death to have eternal life. Look at what he says. I am the living one, for I died, and now look, behold, I am yet alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What is that? It's a description of Christ having overcome sin and death, and now he stands as the ultimate giver of life. It is a description of the way that Jesus conquered, and the way that he conquered was by attaining to eternal life, not just for himself, but for you as well. And that's the significance of him now having the keys to death and to Hades. Now you say, okay, I see how that's a description of Jesus overcoming death, but the word Nike isn't actually used there in that text. So how do I know that that's the same thing as what it means for me to overcome? If the key word's not used there, how do I know that that's the same definition for me? That's what it meant for him, but what does it mean for me? Well, one of the most important principles in Bible interpretation is to let the Scripture interpret itself. All right, and so then we have to ask the question, is there a different text where John the Apostle uses the same word to conquer in a way that explains what he means by that? And indeed, there is. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 5, and we'll see the way that the Apostle John, the very same author of Revelation, defines what it means to conquer. And what we're going to find here is a picture that is synonymous with the work that Jesus has already done. See, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, John leaves no bones about it. He says, look, for everyone who has been born of God, that's the one that overcomes the world. Pretty clear, right? So, how is it that we are to overcome the world and be born of God? Well, he goes on, this specifically is the victory that has overcome the world. It's our faith. An explanation that is perfectly consistent with Jesus' explanation back to Nicodemus in John 3. You remember that? He says, Nicodemus, in order for you to be born of God, you must have faith in the Son of God. And the only way for you to have what? Eternal life is as you are born of God. See, that's the way that we are able to overcome. It is as we are born again to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And indeed, that's exactly what John explains here in verse 5 of 1 John 5. He says, Who is it that overcomes, conquers the world, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, he's locked it down. He's used the word Nike three times in two verses. Here is exactly what I mean when I say to conquer or to overcome. It means that I have been born now to eternal life through faith, but not just some generic general faith, through faith specifically in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Overcoming, then, is synonymous with me gaining the eternal life that is mine through faith. Do you see that? The way that you can be a conqueror, the way that you attain to eternal life, is exclusively through faith 
in Jesus Christ. That is how we overcome sin and death, just as Jesus overcame sin and death before us. So, now that we understand what it means to be a conqueror, it means that you are one who has inherited the blessing of eternal life by means of faith in Jesus' work. Now that we understand that, Now we can turn our attention back to the statements that Jesus makes here in Revelation 1 through 3 to see how he is going to motivate us to be what he expects for us to be. So, to the one who in the end walks by faith and achieves the promised reality of eternal life with Christ, here is what awaits you. See, this is now the explanation of what a conqueror gets. And friends, this is the point we've been trying to get down to. We couldn't do it without making the definition, but now that we have, this is the heart of what Jesus is communicating here to these churches. Because the statements that he is about to make to each of these churches and to our church, they are the motivations that we need in order to run faithfully. You say, why should I seek to do all of the things that Jesus has has admonished his churches to do in these three chapters? It's because of the things that await you once you receive eternal life. That's the reason why we must apply ourselves to be the kind of church that Jesus expects for us to be. See, if you recall, at the end of each of these messages to each of these churches, there has been a statement given about, a, about what awaits the faithful ones. To those who conquer, when you step into glory, if you have exhibited faith in Jesus Christ, Here are all the parade of blessings that are going to be poured out upon you. See, when you and I, when we get to heaven, there is going to be a triumphal celebration held in honor of Jesus Christ because of his work for you. And part of that celebration is going to be the active inheritance or the pouring out of eternal heavenly blessings upon you. And in that day, you and and I, we will say together, boy, it was worth it all. Because we can know right now what those blessings will be in that day. And those are the motivations that we must keep in mind. See this here, this is the grand finale of Jesus' messages to his church that we have got to keep before our eyes so that we will be motivated to walk in faithfulness to him. So, if you conquer, if you have faith and receive eternal life, here is what you will receive. There are seven different features of our eternal reward given to us in these chapters. And I warn you in advance, we're going to move rather rapidly through them, but they're good things for us to understand, so buckle up. The first thing that Jesus gives to his church here to motivate them is the knowledge that when they get to heaven, there will be eternal satisfaction waiting for them there. You can see that right there in chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus says, look, he who has an ear, that's all of you, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, for us to understand the imagery, we have to understand the tree of life. Because, see, the tree of life, as he's using it here, is an image or a metaphor that means permanent, perpetual, perfect satisfaction. We know that because the tree of life, if you recall, was originally planted back in the Garden of Eden. It was there for Adam and Eve to partake of and to not just see eternal life, but to literally taste it for themselves. And yet, when they turned their back upon God and listened to Satan and ate of a different tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they immediately lost access to the life of God. And so the tree of life, we're told in Genesis 3.22, was transplanted from the Garden of Eden 
out of the presence of man and placed in heaven. And ever since that day, mankind has not known satisfaction. Ever since that day, mankind has only known death. Ever since then, he can't get no satisfaction. Why? Because he is separated from the presence of God. And there is no satisfaction for the human heart apart from God. And therefore, this is what we are able to look forward to when we get to heaven. It is the perfect satisfaction now of knowing, tasting the life that exists from being in close proximity to and communion with God. That's the significance of the tree of life given to us here in this text. Listen to what Revelation 22, 1 through 5 says. When we get to heaven, listen to what's waiting for us there. Then the angel showed me, John says, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree. They were for the healing of the nations and no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in that place and all of his servants will worship him for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. See that's the promise of what awaits those who walk by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what awaits those who conquer and overcome sin and death here in this life perfect, complete, eternal satisfaction as you find perfect life now in the presence of God. That's the essence of eternal life. And every desire of your now perfectly purified heart will be fulfilled in his presence. That's the satisfaction that awaits you. But that's just the first of seven blessings that are going to be granted to you. Let's keep going. Because beyond eternal satisfaction, we're also told that we will receive permanent safety as well. See, Jesus says here, you are not going to be hurt by the second death. You say, well, what is, what is the second death? What does that mean? Well, understanding the impact of this promise requires that we have a biblical understanding of what death actually is. See, very briefly, I'll explain it. There are three kinds of death that are described for us in the scripture. The first form of death is spiritual death. That is the condition into which you are born. And spiritual death is defined as the separation of your soul from the presence of God. That's the condition that you and I have been born into. Because of our sin, at the point of conception, we are created with a soul, but it has no knowledge of God because it has been separated from God by our sinful humanity. And so we're all born dead spiritually, which leads us then to the next form of death, which Scripture will often refer to as being the first death. And that is physical death. Physical death is defined as the separation of my body from my soul. And that's what happens when someone dies physically. Their soul is disconnected from their body. Their soul continues to live, but their body goes down into the ground. That's how we describe physical death. And it's the first kind that we actually cognitively experience and go through and have an experiential knowledge of. That's why it's called the first death. But then the final form of death, we've seen spiritual, we've seen physical, is eternal death. And eternal death is defined as the separation of both your body and your soul from God forever. Every word of that definition is very important. That is a horrible fate to befall. That you now are separated not just from the physical presence of God, but from the spiritual presence of God. And that is the horror that Pastor Jeff recounted for us all last week in my absence. And so we've seen it. We understand the horror and the tragic nature of that kind of eternal death. That's the second death. And it's the one that is to be feared above all other forms of death. But look at the promise that Jesus gives now that we understand this. He says, to the one who has faith in me, to the one who conquers, you will not be hurt by the second death. 
Is that not a wonderful promise for us now to wrap our arms around and remember to cling to and to hope in now? You have no fear of death at all because you and I, if we be in Christ, death can't touch us. You see, there is no way that the second death, the eternal worst form of death, can even come near us. It can't even hurt us, the text says. That's Jesus' promise to you. Neither shall your body nor your soul in eternity ever be separated from the presence of God again. Why? Because for the Christian, for the one who knows Christ, You see, to be absent with this body is now to be present with the Lord. And so shall we always be with the Lord, the New Testament tells us. No death for us, only life in Christ. And so therefore, the promise to the one who overcomes is that mankind's greatest all-time enemy, death, separation from God and body and soul, gone forever. The threat of it extinguished, the sting of it removed. And so now you and I, we can, we can turn our faces towards that eternity with expectancy rather than with dread. That's the safety that awaits you now. See, Jesus says, look, in my presence, you will eternally be satisfied. You will permanently be safe. No death in that place. But he's not done. He keeps going in his messages to these churches. Message number three to church number three is that if you conquer through faith in me, you will find everlasting security as well. You can see there in chapter 2, verse 17, that that which is promised to us is some of the hidden manna and a white stone and a new name. And you say, well, what is that? What does that mean? And admittedly, the interpretation here can be a bit confusing, but it's really quite simple when you start to unravel it. It's best to interpret these images as referring to your right to be in heaven, celebrating at the banquet that God has prepared before you. You see, the best interpretation for understanding what this hidden manna is, is that it is the preparation of spiritual blessings before you that awaits for you in heaven. There has been a table set for you in heaven with the full provision of God laid out upon that table, heaped upon it until it's ready to collapse. You see, God has provided for you every spiritual blessing. And, and there are things there on that table that we don't even know about today. That's why it's called hidden manna. It's provision of God that we can't see or even know, and yet it's there. But then he goes on and says, in addition to you having a right to come and sit at that table and partake of all those blessings in my presence, I'm going to give you a white stone which in the ancient world was a symbol that you had to have in order to get into a particular kind of celebration. You see, they didn't have driver's licenses or real IDs back in that day. And so for you to be able to prove your identity when you came to the door of a great banquet, you had to pull out the ticket that had been issued to you, the white stone, so to speak, and that would grant you entry into that place and give you the right to be there with everyone else who was gathered. Jesus says, you're going to have that right to that table that is loaded full of my blessings for you. And beyond that, written on the stone is a name that no one knows except the one who has received it. You say, why is that so important? Because, friend, it means that no one can take your stone and use it in your place. That ticket has been genetically encoded to you specifically, spiritually speaking. And so you and you alone have the right to be there in that place. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's giving us a promise that there is everlasting security. You've got the right to be there in God's presence and receive all of his blessings. And no one, and I mean no one, can deport you from that place because your place now in his presence is secure that's the eternal security that is waiting for those who are found in Christ and that's the third blessing that he pours out upon us the right to be in his presence enjoying all of his blessings that he has now provided but Jesus goes on I know maybe you're getting tired but that's only number three out of seven this is the middle one okay so hang with me He also tells us that there is going to be an authoritative elevation that happens as well. 
At the end of chapter 2, he says, The one who conquers will be exalted above the nations. With a rod of iron, he will have the morning star. See, this is a reference to your place in the millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, tells us that during this time, which follows his second coming, it's a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, there are going to be nations that choose to rebel against King Jesus, which is frankly really stupid because Jesus is pictured in that day as ruling with a rod of iron that smashes the rebels as though they were nothing but a clay pot. That's what happens in the millennial kingdom. But look at where he says you're going to be there in that day. To those of us who have conquered here in this life, during that thousand-year reign, he is going to delegate his authority now to us. Authority to do what specifically? Not build ourselves more palatial mansions, but to uphold his righteousness, to promote his perfect holiness. See, in that day, we are going to be agents of the king, exercising his authority over those who choose not to follow him. And the text goes on to say that not only will you have his authority and reign with him, you will also receive the morning star. See, elsewhere in Scripture, the morning star is identified for us as being the person of Jesus Christ. The statement there being an explanation of the fact that in this kingdom, during this time, not only will you have the authority of Christ, but you will glow with the reflection of the glory of Christ as well. You will be identified with him, and the glow and the brightness of the glory of Christ, the morning star, will be seen and exhibited through you. You will have a most exalted place on that day. See, we will shine with his glory. The glory, honor, authority to proclaim the holiness and righteousness of Christ, that's that privilege. That's going to be poured out and granted to us. That's the authority that awaits you on that day. We keep going. Blessing number five. Jesus says, in addition to all these things, you will have righteous perfection as well. You will be clothed in white garments and your name will be in the book of life. Now look, we've talked at length, have we not? About the importance of being clothed in the pure robes of Christ's righteousness. John has come back to that multiple times in the first three chapters of this book. And so we don't need to belabor that point, but here's what we do need to understand In this life here today, though positionally we've been declared righteous before God, practically you and I are still carefully picking our way through the sewage of our hearts, trying to keep our garments free from getting stained. And the reason for that is because we have the indwelling ooze of our flesh still resident within us and making the task impossible. But friend, Jesus is here today to tell you that that day is going to come to a close. The day of struggle that we experience now, it is going to end, and we will permanently, perpetually, positionally, and practically be clothed in perfectly white robes reflecting the purity and righteousness of Jesus Christ. But more than this, look at what Jesus says. And not only are you going to be clothed in his righteousness, but in that day, I am going to confess publicly your name before my father and his angels. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You say, why is that so important? Well, it's pretty clear because you are not only going to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ and free from sin and shame and any kind of stain, but your name is going to be registered in the halls of heaven as a citizen of that most fair place. And there is going to be no secret whatsoever that you and I, we belong there. 
How do we know? Because Jesus says, I'm going to step up in public and read off your name in front of everybody, God and his angels included, and say, this one, he or she, they are mine. They belong to me. They're a citizen of this city, and I can prove it. Just look at the clothes that they're dressed in. They are the robes of righteousness, the pure ones that they never could have bought on their own. But no, I have crafted specifically for them myself. And that's how I know they belong here because they are dressed in righteousness of my making. That's the speech that Jesus is going to give to everybody in that day. That's what you have to look forward to. No longer your struggle with your sin and your flesh, but now you have the righteousness of Christ clothing you and the proof that that provides to everyone that you belong here. That's what we anticipate See, it's that perfection that awaits you. But Jesus keeps going. He says beyond this righteous perfection, number six, there's also going to be an unshakable stability there in that place for you as well. Look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. He says, the one who conquers is going to be a pillar in God's temple bearing the load of God's name, bearing the load of the name of this city bearing the load of my own name. See, that's what a pillar does. As any architect will tell you, the thing about a pillar is that once you start to put weight upon it, that pillar is never going to be removed. That's the whole point of the pillar. Once it starts to bear weight, it's not going to be removed. Once you put it in, it's not coming out. That's the kind of stability that you and I will have in heaven. We're described as being pillars in the temple of God bearing his name and the name of the city of my God, which comes down from God out of heaven and the name of Christ himself. That is what we will bear. The image portraying the reality that when we get to heaven, you and I, there is no variability to the favor of God. He is not a fickle master who is pleased with us one day in his presence and displeased from us the next, shooing us from his presence. No, you're a load-bearing structure there in the temple of God. You're a permanent fixture there in his presence. That's what he's saying. There is no going out. There is no coming in. There is no danger from your enemies, no threats from your sin. No, you've got the name of God, his city, and his son stamped all over you in that day. Friend, that's the kind of safety and stability that awaits you. And is that not the kind of stability that we earnestly long for in such an unstable world? You pick up the news every day. I open my web browser and I see the headlines and I just shake my head and scratch it wondering what is going on? There is no stability in this world. Why? Because mankind continues to pursue his own ends. And yet the day is coming where there will be perfect stability for those of us who have conquered in Christ. For those of us who have won the victory over sin and death by means of faith in his work, we will be stable, we will be secure, his name being written on us. Sounds pretty good to me right about now. How about you? See, there's one more. There's one more blessing that Jesus gives to us here and of all the blessings that are, that are explained here in Revelation 2 through 3, this is perhaps my favorite. It's profound union with Christ. Let me tell you why it's my favorite. Jesus says there in the message to the Laodiceans at the end of chapter 3, he says, it will be given to you by my Father to sit with me on my throne. Now, do you remember the question that the Apostle John asked back in Mark chapter 10 verse 37. John is the author of this book, Revelation, and John and his older brother James got themselves into a bit of a disagreement back in Mark chapter 10. Do you remember the story? Where these two boys, these brothers, got into a bit of a fraternal spat, if you will. They, they could not agree with each other because they thought, you see, that they were hot shots here on this earth. I mean, they were the disciples of Christ, for crying out loud. Jesus himself having named them the sons of thunder. And they took that in the most positive way possible. I don't think that's how Jesus meant it, but I think they misunderstood. 
because they thought an awful lot about themselves. And they said to themselves, boy, if we have been elevated to either side of Christ here on this earth, what do you think that means for us in eternity? Boy, we're going to have some pretty elevated spots when we get to heaven. And so John comes to James and he says, you know, James, you're a good guy and all, and I love you like a brother, but Jesus only has two sides. That's good news for you because I'm the one who's clearly going to be on his right side, the place of authority and honor. And, and that's okay, James, because the left one, that one's, been, that one's been reserved for you. Don't worry, brother. And James says to John, pound sand, John, you can take the left side because the right side's going to be mine. How does the resolution come to the argument? Well, these two paragons of humility send their mother to Jesus to ask him on their own behalf. And James and John's mother comes up to Jesus and says, I can't settle it between these boys. Could you, Jesus, tell them which is going to be on your right? And which is going to be on your left? And Jesus, do you remember his response? He ignores the mom and he turns to the boys and essentially says, boys, are you able to drink of the cup that I am about to drink? What's he saying? I am about to overcome much by way of sin and death. Are you able to do that on your own? Are you able to win your own right to be with me at the side of my throne? No, you are not. And Jesus goes on and he says here very clearly, it is not for me to grant access to my throne. There, that's an honor that is prepared for those who have been set aside by my Father. That is an honor for those who overcome and conquer in the same way that I am going to overcome and conquer. That is an honor rever- reserved exclusively for those who have the gift of eternal life. It's a profound statement. You see, those who have the right to be united with Christ and sit with Him in heaven are those who overcome sin and death through their faith in Christ's work of overcoming sin and death. And only the Father can grant that kind of faith. Only the Father can enable you to overcome as I am about to overcome. Now that we understand the background, let's come back to Revelation chapter 3. Because here, friends, is the twist that Jesus introduces to a much older, wiser, more mature Apostle John. He says to John here in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, John, if you overcome, remember that conversation you had with James about either being on my right or left? Well, John, if the Father has granted life to you, you will sit with me on my throne. And can't you see John in his advanced old age just shaking his head at the foolishness of his youthful self as Jesus tells him how it's really going to be? Friends, this is truly an amazing statement here. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, look, if we endure, we will reign with Christ. And that's why I say this is the most glorious of all the promises that are made to the churches of Christ. Because see, to the one who overcomes, you and I, we are going to be united with Christ in such a perfect union that it can be said that you are now ruling with him for you are going to be found in him, seated upon his throne throne right there with him a front row seat to all the action in heaven why because not just are you there with Christ you are found in Christ and you are perfectly united with the person of your savior friend that is the greatest of blessings that is waiting for you in heaven and it's why Jesus reserves it for the very end of the list you and I today we see him as though through a glass dimly but the day is going to come when we will see him face to face and our faith shall be made sight and in that day when we see him just as he is we will be made like him in perfect union with him, dressed in the robes of his righteousness, able to claim all of these blessings as our own, having the name of God stamped upon our hearts as pillars in the temple of his presence, having the security and the comfort that comes from partaking of the tree of life that is there, having the ticket in our pocket knowing that this is where I belong now and no one can take that right from me. See, that is what awaits those of us who know Christ in faith. And does that truth not warm your heart? It should. See, it warmed the Apostle Peter's heart. 
He couldn't get off these things. It's why each of his two epistles start out with a reference to the precious and very great promises that are given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. It's why he says, for instance, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that it is the divine power of Jesus that has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you and I, we might now become partakers of the divine nature. It's why Peter says again, over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that it's Jesus who has now caused us to be born again to a living kind of hope through promises that have been reserved for us in heaven, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfolding, that has been kept in heaven for you who by God's power are even now being guarded. See, if you've come to faith in Christ, you can't lose these blessings. They're being guarded by Jesus for you, awaiting the day when you will step into his presence and he will be able to give them all to you. That is the day that Peter looked forward to. And it's the reason why Jesus just pulls back the corner of the glory of what awaits us when we get to that day. Why? so that we might look at those precious and very great promises, that imperishable, unfading, untarnished inheritance, and see in these things the motivation for why we ought to be what he has called for us to be here today. You know, as we've moved through these promises, the seven promises that Jesus has lined up for us in a grand finale of sorts, we have to understand that any time a believer leaves this world and enters the gates of heaven, the bestowal of all of these grand things starts up all over again. In heaven, the celebration never ceases. All of these promises fall around our ears like glorious splendors because the motivation given to us for seeking to be the kind of church that Jesus has described is because of the living hope of the promises of what awaits us. And Jesus has left us here this morning with no lack of clarity about what is waiting for us. So we've seen what it is to be a conqueror. We've seen what a conqueror gets. Now we need to figure out what should we be doing with ourselves today while we wait. And this is the final point, And it's really a very simple one and good thing because I've only got four minutes left. Here we move away from the, from the motivation to the explanation of how. How do we as a church end up on the awards podium? I mean, obviously you can't become a conqueror without having faith in Christ. We get that. That's the entry point. But if I do have faith, is that it? Or is there something that I can and should be doing here today? And there is. Look with me at verse 21 of chapter 3. Jesus says, To the one who conquers as I also conquered. And that's very important. It means that if you are marked as one who is an overcomer, all these blessings having been reserved in heaven for you, then you are going to walk today in the very same way that Jesus himself first walked before you. Well, how did Jesus walk when he was here overcoming? Friend, it was in full dependency upon the Spirit of God which is why each one of these seven statements has ended with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, the New Testament makes no lack of clarity about the fact that Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, walked in a way that was fully reliant upon God's Spirit. Hebrews 9.14 tells us that it was through the Spirit of God that Christ offered himself to God so that we might be saved. But beyond his dependence at the point of the cross, he was also dependent even through the point of the resurrection as well. See, Romans 8.11 tells us that it was the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. See, the way that Christ overcame and conquered sin and death was as he walked in dependency upon God's Spirit. And here's the really interesting connection for us, that it comes out of the text that I just mentioned in Romans chapter 8. Because Paul goes on to say there in Romans 8, if Christ died and was raised in dependency on the Spirit, how much more do you think that this same Spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies? Therefore, brothers, we are debtors now, required to live. 
required to walk according to the Spirit of God. And that, my friend, is what a spiritually victorious person does. That is what a person who has true faith in Jesus Christ is going to do. They are going to seek to walk in dependency on the Spirit the same way that their Lord and Savior, the first conqueror, walked in dependency on the Spirit. And that's the reason why, even though Jesus is the one speaking in Revelation 1 through 3, we are instructed to listen if we have ears to what the Spirit says to us. That's not just an admonition to listen to what was said to each of these churches. That's a permanent, perpetual willingness to listen to everything that the Spirit of God says to us. So how then, as a church, if this is the key to conquering, walking by the power of the Spirit... Do we hear and listen to the Spirit? Well, it's as he illumines the truth of the Scripture for us. Because see, without him, you can't understand and apply these things and see life change affected in you. But with him, it's the glory of the truth in this book that he now makes known to you and is the order of everything for our life and doctrine. So the question before us then is this, if we would be a faithful church, will we listen to what the Spirit has to say in this book or not? See, you and I, we we cannot hope to strike out and claim victory for ourselves. This message that I'm bringing to you here today from Revelation 1 through 3, this is not meant to be a pep rally to say, go forth and conquer. No, it's an appeal to you to go forth in dependency upon the Spirit of Jesus who now dwells within you. For it's only as we are willing to walk by His Spirit that we can, we can fulfill the things He's given to us here, to love the way that He has first loved us. It's only as we walk by the Spirit that we can be emboldened to be a fearless church in the face of opposition. It's only as the Spirit illumines us through the truth that we are able to discern that which is true from that which is not and, and therefore be a lovingly intolerant church. It's only by the power of the Spirit at work within us who assists us in saying no to our sin that we can be a pure church. It's only as we have the Spirit of God here that we can be a vibrant church. But if we've left Him in the rear view mirror, we may as well be like Sardis, a dead church. It's only as we have the Spirit of God and we walk in dependency upon Him that we can be a resolute and steadfast church proclaiming His message to the end of the earth and making disciples. It's only as we have the Spirit of God within us, friends, that we are able to be a dependent church. You see, this is the how of how we are now to walk and conquer. It's just as Jesus walked in dependency upon this very Spirit who has now said to the church, if you have an ear... Listen to what I tell you. So as we move out of Revelation back to the epistle of John, or the gospel of John, may that be our objective. May we be found victorious as we depend upon his power in the place of our own. And when he looks at us, may he say, well done, my good and faithful servant, with fire in his eyes and roaring voice. And may that be the approval after which we now seek. Let's close in a word of prayer together. Our Father, we do thank you for your word.